If you turn in your Bible, I'm not going to read all those verses, 15 through 25. We have read them already in your presence. Two verses only and then a half of another verse, 15 and 16. And just the first part of verse 19. Judges chapter 7 and verse 15. And it was so. When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof. I don't know if I've mentioned it before, but you have an old King James Bible, you'll notice the marginal reading of that word. Interpretation is breaking. There's a very significant, I haven't emphasized it in my notes but and in my sermons, but there is a very significant and interesting use of Hebrew language right there. That's why the King James translators at least made an attempt to do something about that wording. There is this idea of breaking something open, conveyed in that Hebrew word, so that it literally says to us that when Gideon heard the dream, he also heard this pagan soldier breaking open the meaning thereof. Curious and interesting phrase. The interpretation thereof, when Gideon heard it, he worshipped and returned into the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies and put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and the lamps. And again, you'll notice the marginal reading is firebrands or torches so as not to convey the idea that these were lamps with oil rather these were some form of torch made of wax and pitch so every man had in one hand a trumpet and an empty pitcher and the lamps within the pictures. And then verse 19, So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. And they had but newly Set the watch. Turn with me, if you will, please, in your hymn book. Away back to the back in number 1063. 163, stand with me, please. 
as we sing. Notice the subtitle for the hymn, The Importance of Today. Tomorrow, Lord, is thine, lodged in thy sovereign hand. And if its sun arise and shine, it shines at thy command. The present moment flies, and bears our life away. Oh, make thy servants truly wise, that they may live today. Since on this fleeting hour, eternity is hung, Awake by thine almighty power, the aged and the young. One thing demands our care, oh, be that still pursued, lest slighted once the season fair should never be renewed. To Jesus may we fly, swift as the morning light, lest life's young golden beam should die in sudden endless Nine. Thank you. Be seated. The message titled this morning, Timing is Everything. I intend that it shall be a short message this morning, and that not because of my sickness. This message was written long before I had any sickness. But as we resume our studies in the text this morning, these verses 15 through 25 of chapter 7 of Judges, I've already read this full account in your hearing on previous weeks. And in that first message that I brought from it, I could do no more than to introduce you to the text with an emphasis, as I did in that message, on Gideon's own experience of faith. After that glorious scene had played out there, Verses 11 through 14, Gideon's ever-growing faith has now ripened under the sunshine of God's divine compassion and the fruit of courage is now 
harvested full ripe in the soul of this faithful servant when we arrive at the end of verse 15. I said his faith has now ripened in the sunshine of God's divine compassion. And the fruit of that faith, the fruit of that sunshine is courage that's being harvested full ripe in this servant. Now, as I pointed out to you in that last message, now he echoes that oft-repeated command of his blessed angel when he says, at the end of verse 15, Arise! For the Lord <laughs> hath delivered into your hands these Midianites. How many times? I pointed it out to you in that last message. How many times has the Lord said this to him? But he struggled. Now finally, under the sunlight of God's blessings, his faith has grown and now he is repeating the command from his own lips. I preached on last week and I have no desire to be unduly tedious. But by preaching that message on last week, I brought your heart to entertain this reality that when true faith Heaven-born faith has wrought its godlike qualities in the soul. God's words will become our words. When real faith, God-born faith, has wrought its good work in the soul of the sinner, then all of a sudden God's word becomes our words. His spirit will bear witness with our spirits and we will agree fully and unreservedly with all that God has said. <laughs> That's the first and most obvious problem, is it not, when the gospel comes to the sinner? To get the sinner's heart to agree with God. Agree with God about himself. Agree with God about his word. Agree with God about his son. I used to say, many years ago I used to say, people say, did you get anybody saved? In the jailhouse, Brother Ariel Brazel visited here. Y'all, some of you know him. Brother Ariel used to say, I'm not having any trouble getting folks saved. I'm having a hard time getting them lost. But when the Spirit of God works faith in the heart of a sinner, he'll agree with God, and God's words will become his words. So now Gideon is ready. With all of his heart, he's ready now to go down and claim the victory that Jehovah has wrought out already. 
I said that Jehovah has wrought out already. I say already, even though the battle hasn't begun, because we know from that conversation that Gideon overhears among the Midianite soldiers, we know that even in their own hearts, the war for them is already lost. <laughs> this is an army already defeated, dispirited, and subjugated, not by weapons of human crafting, not by stratagems of military prowess, but this is a people already defeated by Israel's God. Verse 14, his fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, for into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all of the hosts. <laughs> you see, the victory is already won. <laughs> Gideon's job is to go down and lay claim to what God's already done. I said it's already a defeated nation. They're already dispirited. They're already subjugated. Not by weapons of human crafting or military stratagems, but by Israel's God. Oh, my beloved saints. I would that we could learn here a lesson. To whatever task God has appointed you, young men, students, fathers, mothers, aged, to whatever task God has appointed you, to whatever battle you must face into whatever trial you must march, whatever clouds surround your trembling heart, and under whatever misgivings and doubt your soul is toiling in distress, know this, God has already gone before you and conquered all of his enemies. God has already gone before you and conquered all of his enemies and subdued them before your arrival. <laughs> oh, I would that my heart, I would that my heart weren't so foolish and stubborn. I would that my heart could lay hold on that truth. Whatever I face, whatever God appoints for me, whatever comes along by his appointment, he's already gone and conquered. It's just for me to go down. Go down. Lay claim. Oh, listen. <laughs> listen to the blessed wording of Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 1. Moses went and spake these words unto all Israel. He said unto them, I am 120 years old this day. 
I can no more go out and come in. Also the Lord has said unto me, Thou shalt not go over this, Jordan. The Lord thy God, He will go over before thee. And He will destroy these nations from before thee. And thou shalt possess them. And Joshua, He shall go over before thee. As the Lord hath said. And the Lord shall do unto all, unto them as he did unto Sihon and all kings of Amorites and unto the land of them whom he destroyed. And the Lord shall give them up before your face that ye may do unto them according unto all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them for the Lord thy God. He it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and of a good courage, for thou must go with this people into the land which the Lord hath sworn unto their fathers to give them, and thou shalt cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he it is that doth go before thee. Hallelujah. He will be with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. I'm telling you, whatever God, whatever God, whatever God, whatever God appoints in your life, whatever God sends for you, He's already gone before you. Even to that most fearful day when death marches in, He's already gone. <laughs> oh, Gideon, Gideon's heart, Gideon's heart was fortified with this truth. The Lord's been telling him all this time. How many times did we read? Six or eight times. He's been telling him, arise, go down, Gideon. I've given them to you. But finally, the work of God in his heart is such that faith has grown. And now Gideon is coming to his men and saying, arise, let's go down. The Lord's given them to us. Hallelujah. He's gone before us. Isaiah chapter 45, thus saith the Lord is anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I am holding, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut, and I will go before thee. I'll go before thee and make the crooked place straight. I'll break in pieces the gates of brass and cut asunder the bars of iron and I'll give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which called thee by thy name, I am the God of Israel. I'm going to go before you. I could read on, you could read on. Oh, he falls into worship. The Lord says in verse 5, I am the Lord. There's none else. There's no God. Oh, I love this. I am the Lord. There's none else. There's no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the, from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord. There's 
none else. I love this. The Puritans, you know what they said about that verse? One of the Puritans called this the the onlyness of God. <laughs> Amen. The onlyness of God. <laughs> I am the Lord. There's none beside me. I am the Lord. There's none else. I form the light and create the darkness. I make peace, create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop down, ye heavens. Drop down, ye heavens, and worship. And let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation and righteousness. And spring up together, I, the Lord, have created it all. I just wish we could get this lesson in our hearts this morning. Oh, this only God, this only God, the onlyness of God has gone before us. <laughs> now Gideon, now Gideon sees it. Oh, yes, this covenant keeping God has gone before Gideon. And now it's time for him to go down. Indeed. He must take his 300 men and go down to complete the victory. As the record before us unfolds, we find the most bizarre plan is hatched. Whether this plan was given by direct revelation or it was somehow a crafty stroke of genius in Gideon, we do not know. The record simply does not tell us. But I tend more to believe that it was a work of divine impulse in some way working through Gideon's heart. Whatever the case, this company of 300 men are equipped and then divided into three separate companies, each to go in a different direction surrounding the camp of Midian. As to the dispersal of these companies, nothing is extraordinary. In fact, it is exactly as we might would expect. In military terms, he divides his 300 men into three companies of 100 each. And he sets out and surrounds the Midianite camp. As I say, there's nothing interesting or unusual in that arrangement. The marvel and mystery of the whole affair is not the logistics of their tactic but the weapons of their equipage. Verse 16, And he divided three hundred men into three companies and put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. <laughs> oh, what a strange equipage. I read you a quote in the last message that I brought where one commentator said that Gideon's army seemed more suited for a surprise attack 
on a band of children than on a horde of soldiers. Oh, surely if you came upon a little encampment of children in the woods and you surrounded them in this way with pitchers and torches and trumpets and suddenly blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers and flashed the lights, no doubt it would it would frighten terribly children. And it looked like Gideon was more prepared to frighten children than to take on a Midianite army. But oh, Israel must learn. The Midianites must learn. And this church must learn that it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit saith the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 4 and verse 6. Our God is jealous for his own glory. Go way back to verse 2 and listen. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vault themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. I said, God is jealous of his glory, and he will not share it. Isaiah 42 and verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name, and my glory will I not give to another Neither my praise the graven angels. Oh, at the conclusion of all of this scene, once this scene unfolds, and we haven't seen it yet, we haven't preached it yet, but once this thing is over with, when the smoke clears, as we say in our language, and the battles are done, and the day is done, and it's all over, and God's got the complete victory at the conclusion of all this sound, this scene, there'll be no crowds lining the street shouting, Phura hath killed his thousands, but Gideon's his tenth of thousands. Oh no, there'll be no such thing. Our God will order this battle so that his enemies shall kill themselves and he shall get all the glory. Hallelujah. <laughs> God will get all the glory. Verse 16, he the mystery and wonder of this whole scene is the weaponry with which they're equipped. What a bizarre. <laughs> I wonder if I could just pause right here in the story and ask our hearts a very painful question. I wonder if we're not sometimes seeing so few victories, so few Midianites slain in our lives, in our homes, because we're so incurably reluctant to use God's means and hold out for nothing but His glory. I've been re-examining 
in recent days, my own praying, I'm constantly, constantly, seems like these years, I'm constantly reevaluating my own praying. If I could be honest, how much of my praying is for things that I want? Even when it's for others. But do I want it for others? Do I have God's glory in my eyes only? Nothing but God's glory. Am I going to be pleased to use nothing but His means to see it happen? What an equipage. What a strange equipage. Oh, it was the ever wise Timothy Rogers in 1615 said it this way. He said this carrying of pictures in their hands as Gideon willed them to do. A few unarmed men <laughs> against some hundred thousand well-prepared soldiers. What an unlikely matter was it that they should effect anything by this means. But we see what a wonderful victory it brought. The like may be said of Joshua's compassing the walls of Jericho seven days with blowing trumpets of ram horns and yet seeing the Lord promised and he believed it and the walls of the city at the appointed time fell down. But by both of these examples we learn that though the means be never so weak to effect any good at all, yet if God direct us to them and promise to work by them, it behooves us to look up to Him as Gideon here did, and we shall see the power of God in using them, though they be weak. For though they serve not for one use, which carnal reason doth only look to, yet they shall serve for another, which God intended by them. Even as here we see, said Rogers, that although these means here used by Gideon and his soldiers served not to beat down and destroy their enemies, Yet we see that they serve to terrify, affright, and scatter them, and to set one of them against another. And yet our carnal reason, our carnal reason, if we trust not to weapons in war, scoffs at our fasting and prayer, at which so many great victories have been won. Hester the queen prevailed against wicked Haman in a most great difficulty. And so preaching is foolish to reason and human wisdom to bringing men to Christ. But read First Corinthians and you'll find out in that chapter 1 all that that chapter covers. God has chosen the weak things to confound the strong. I wonder if we're just satisfied with using God's means. I wonder sometimes. Do we try to work out some stratagem to win our lost families? Do we tire of just going back to the old message saying it's in Christ. It's in Christ. 
It's in Christ. What else can I say to you? It's in Christ. Later on, Roger said it further appeareth by the effect what these fearful means wrought, which the holy story setteth down in this verse, that the whole camp was astonished, feared, cried out, and fled, in which case let no man think that these means alone, apart from God's work, had any great force to fear, certainly not to hurt the enemies. For what was there in the blowing of a trumpet? The breaking of a pitcher or a lights. What was it? But the Lord put his hand and helped whereby the enemies were daunted and set beside themselves or else all that was done had been ridiculous. He that made Goliath's head to be cut off with his own sword, he will still bless the unlikely means. Oh, yes, he'll bless the unlikely means of our prayers, our patience, our hope, and the like to bring great things to pass, yea, and faith to overcome the world, without which what are all other things soever. Still I say, therefore, as I said before, blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. Oh, William, William McEver, McEwen, William McEwen, sometime around 1760, was preaching from that text in Genesis 6, talking about Noah's Ark. And McEwen said, What mortal wit could have contrived such an excellence as the Ark of Noah? <laughs> To save an un from an universal deluge. He said there is no doubt but that the whole scheme appeared very ridiculous to the generality of the world. Noah himself was not the contriver of this project. It was wholly planned by God. Even so, if men and angels had tortured their invention to save a guilty world, they could never have so much as suggested that method which the wisdom of God has fallen upon in the preparation of the Lord Jesus Christ. What am I saying? I'm simply saying, I'm simply trying to get you to understand it's God's means. It's God's means. Oh, get him. What are you doing, brother? What are you doing? Pictures, torches, trumpets. You don't even have a sword. What are you doing? Obeying God. Just obeying God. And now faith has birthed in his heart that confidence. He's ready to go. Oh, he goes back and he says to those men, Arise! Get up, everybody. We're going down. We're going down. Can I just put the question one more time to our hearts? Is it just possible? 
that we see so few victories because we are so reluctant to use God's means. There's no show in it. You don't get great posters. <laughs> I had a man sent me a sent me a text this week with a picture of a book that was done sometime in the early seventies. And the whole front of the book was a great huge advertisement. This man's work, Dr. M. R. DeHaan. Oh, it was a photograph of thousands in the congregation. And it even had an advert talking about what great work this man was doing. Where is it now? I wonder if we're satisfied just using the lowly means God's appointed prayer. Intercession. The gospel. This simple, beautiful gospel. But now in our story, notice yet another feature of this whole alarming affair, and I'll close. Notice another feature of this whole alarming affair. They were sent by our Lord at a very specific Time. Look at verse 19 I read for you this morning. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came into the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch and they had but newly set the watch. <laughs> you see, it was midnight. I loved Richard Rogers had a translation. He called it, it was the deep dark. So that their accurate numbers could not be detected. This plan could never have worked at any other time. Not only was it black dark, but it was late. It was after the new watch was set. When all of these men might well expect no further activity for the day. And sleep, no doubt, reigned throughout the camp. The guards were set. Nothing to do now but sleep. But it's interesting, it wasn't sleep after many hours. It was probably right shortly after sleep came to rain. You all know, and I don't have to tell you how difficult it is to get awake when you've just gotten into sleep good. After you've had two, three, four, five hours, it's easier. But if you're suddenly brought to wake shortly after you, you struggle to come out from under its power, don't you? Well, that's exactly 
what time it was in this camp. This was the exact hour for God's appointed charge. Oh, here is surely another lesson for our hearts today. The importance of using our seasons seasonably. <laughs> you like that? I said the importance of using our seasons seasonably. Oh, how Clearly the scriptures teach us there is an appointed time for everything under the sun. Ecclesiastes, the entire chapter 3. Verse 1 tells us specifically there is an appointed time for everything. Now listen to what I'm trying to teach you. Listen to the lesson I'm trying to bring from this. We are living in a culture that tries to acclimate us to omni-seasonal living. You won't find that in Google. I made that up. Omni-seasonal living. We're living in a time where the world has managed to eliminate season. Stores are open 24-7, 365 days. Restaurants open all hours, all nights. We have massive cities and even our smaller cities right here in Coweta County have lights. So much lights that there's no such thing as night anymore. Etc. Etc. I could go on and on. All of these things conspire to rob us of the natural cycles God created. Did he not? Genesis chapter 1, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And the evening and the morning were the second day. God created cycles. And then with those cycles, he created seasons. And did he not use that to teach? He said, plant, labor while it's yet day, for the night comes and no man can labor. And all the way over to the New Testament, our Lord speaks of his own schedule. John chapter 9 and verse 4, I must work a work of him that sent me while it's yet day, the night cometh, when no man can work. But I fear that our culture has acclimated our hearts to an erasure, an erasure of everything that looks like a season or a time. We have third shift 
We have constant streaming on the internet. We have constant entertainment available to us anywhere, anytime, any hour, all year, every minute of every day. All it serves to obliterate seasons. We don't even have to have a TV guide anymore. Remember when TV guide was standard fare? What was the point of the TV guide? Well, it told you what time this was going to happen. If you wanted to see it, you had to be like that. There was a time. We don't even need that anymore. We can watch it an hour later, a day later, a week late, or ten years late. We can watch it any time. Time has no sequence anymore in our culture. Our culture has sought to erase all seasons. It has sought to obliterate the difference between the seasons of youth and old age. Isn't that right? Nobody wants to be old anymore. The young don't want to be considered young. They want to be considered grown. The old don't want to be considered old. They want to be considered young. Our culture is fostering all of this. The times and seasons in a person's life is all being obliterated. Nobody wants to be a student with a master anymore. We don't have any masters in scholarship now. And students, they're all equal. They just come together in classrooms to share information. Oh, I'm not exaggerating. I hope you don't think I'm exaggerating. We're living in a generation that has tried to obliterate seasons of every kind. Oh, how wisely did Paul use this truth when he said to speaking to the Corinthian church in chapter 13 verse 11, he said, when I was a child, I speak as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Paul assumed these seasons of life. In his teaching. But we live in a culture that never wants to see a change in the seasons of life. And I fear that we too, as the people of God, may be infected with this same disease and fail to lay hold on God's timing in our lives. Oh, the counsel of Ecclesiastes 3 must never be lost to us must never be lost to God's peculiar heritage. Listen to it. In everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the sun. A time to be born. Time to die. Time to plant. Time to pluck up that which is planted. Time to kill. Time to heal. Break down. Build up. Weep. Laugh. Mourn. Dance. All these seasons. Teaching of the scripture is very clear. I wonder. You see. When the angel came. Showed Gideon his job. The timing was critical. The timing was critical. Folks. Let me say this to you. And I don't have anybody in mind. I don't have anybody. God sees my heart. I don't have any particular thing in mind. But I hope the Holy Spirit does. 
every one of us is somewhere on God's appointed time. And there's things we better seize right now. Gideon could not have done this four hours later. He couldn't have done it four hours earlier. There was an appointed, and the scripture is very clear. The Holy Spirit lays this out. I mean, verse 19, he specifies twice. He said it was at the beginning of the middle watch. They had just set the new watch. That was God's timing. That was the time when God would have it done. Oh, I wonder, are we using our seasons seasonably? There's a time for us as parents, for the children that are in our charge. There's a time for certain things for we to do for needy souls around us. There's a time for certain things for us to do for the aged that are in our midst. There are times, there are seasons. And I'm asking us, are we using God's seasons seasonably? Or are we squandering the time? Well, it's time, Gideon. It's time to go down. They've set the watch in the night. I thought I might say a few words about marching in the dark, but I'm not going to. In fact, I think that would be a wonderful sermon title from this text. You could go in a different direction. It conjures up so many glorious, needful instructions. Marching in the dark. <laughs> he went back, got his crew up, and said, Get up! Arise! Let's go down there. And they put their torches under the pitchers, marched in the dark. Hallelujah. Blessed be God, there's a marching in the dark for the saints of God. Don't have to be all lit up. <laughs> there's times we're going to have to march in the dark. We're going to see the victory of God. But I'll leave it to your own heart to fill out those thoughts. But now the men are arranged. Their hands are filled with God's provisions. The time is divinely set. And now the battle strategy will unfold. God willing, we'll take it up there next week. Please stand with me. Sing with me together. Hymn number 445. Swift declining day, how fast its moments fly. While evening's broad and gloomy shade gains on the western sky. Ye marvel, mortals, Mark its pace. Use the hours of light, for know its maker can command 
an instant, endless night. Stand with me and sing with me. The swift declining day, how fast its moments fly, while evening's broad and gloomy shade gains on the western sky. Ye mortals mark its pace. And use the hours of light, for no its maker can command an instant, endless night. Give glory to the Lord, who rules the rolling spear. Submissive at his footstool bow and seek salvation there. Then shall new luster break through all the heavy gloom and lead you to unchanging light in your Celestial home. <coughs> <coughs> 